Paul had that was handed to Timothy, and Timothy's charge was guard this truth, guard this deposit. It has been entrusted to you. It is precious. Take care of it. Do you guys get the point? (laughs) It's pretty obvious, right? You go from beginning to end, first verse to last verse, and what Paul is exhorting Timothy to do again and again is guard the truth. This is what the church is here for, friends. This is partially why we gather every Sunday, is that the truth would not only be proclaimed, but that all of us would be equipped to be guardians of the truth. Because if we don't know it, how can we preserve it? See, it seems like Paul isn't teaching that churches should be a mile wide and an inch deep. It doesn't seem like that would be, uh, just reading the verses that I read, would you get that point from the text? Uh, that, that doctrine is kind of oh, good, but not necessary. I would actually get the opposite point. I would come to the conclusion after reading 1 Timothy, it's very clear in all these verses, that churches ought to be those who proclaim, that teach, that make sure doctrine is being understood. And this happens in the regular preaching of God's Word. This is why we have regular expository sermons where we stand up here and we open the Bible and we read it and we explain it and we apply it. And that the way we preach isn't to try to come up with the the pulse of culture and see what everyone wants to hear and then talk about that. It's really to preach God's Word, to explain it, and go back to the truth, go back to the doctrine, because this stuff will actually shape us. I have a friend who um, grew up in a church uh, from from childhood, and and it was a a bigger church, and... Some big churches are great, and some big churches aren't, and the size of the church really doesn't have anything to do with it. But this person was part of a bigger church and grew up all his life kind of thinking that Christianity was right and true, but really all he knew was that God loved him and that he was supposed to be a good person, kind of the extent of his Christianity. Into his 20s, he began to realize, maybe i got to learn a little bit more, and maybe there's more to this thing than just those two realities. God loves me, and i got to be a good person. And so he began to try to figure out ways in his church to go a little bit deeper. And so he went to a, a kind of a 101 class and, and sat in. And there were questions asked, and he just kind of sat and observed. And he began to come to this conclusion after just trying to get involved in the church and sitting in this 101 class. And then going after that, he went to a, a small group, and he just sat in and, and, and just kind of opened uh, the, um, the computer, and they put on a DVD, and they watched uh, a little video, and that was kind of their small group. And he began to come to this conclusion, after really trying to, to know the, the truths of the Scriptures, that you know, maybe Christianity really is, God loves me, I should try to be a good person, And no one really knows what the Bible says. And so we're all just trying really hard. Maybe that's what Christianity is. Well, this friend happened to come to one of our Bible studies back when we were in Simi Valley, and he was shocked that everyone showed up with a Bible in their hand. And then when the discussion began to happen, uh, everyone was opening up their Bibles, and they were talking with Scriptures to back up the things that they were saying. And everyone seemed to have this clear idea of what the Scriptures taught. And he began to realize that maybe there is an alternative way to understanding the Christian life. It's more than just God loves you, try to be a good person. There's some truths that we can actually know that actually shape our lives. Friends, isn't this 
the essence of discipleship? When Jesus said to his disciples, go unto all nations and make disciples. Remember that command? He told them to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But then he said, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's the mission of the church right there. Jesus said the disciples ought to be not only baptizing, but teaching everything Jesus commanded. Now we're all at various stages in our growth and understanding of what Jesus taught, but this is the mission of the church is to teach and continue teaching and repeatedly teach and repeatedly clarify the truth. Because what happens if we lose the truth? What happens if the truth is lost? Certainly we don't know God. We can't know Christ. We can't obey. If truth is gone, how do we know what to do about any of these realities? And so Paul writes to Timothy, you have to guard the good deposit. You have to guard sound doctrine. Now, lest we be imbalanced and we become so doctrinally focused that we become uh, those types of people who care way more about the doctrine than about people, um, there's another part of this letter that he just emphasizes again and again. We need to highlight this reality that Scripture matters and doctrine matters, but let's think of it this way. Think of a skeletal system. You, you have a skeletal system, and that's the, what you need. That's your doctrine. Uh, it's the system of beliefs. It's the faith that's been handed down to you. It's the, the theology that you've embraced. That's the skeletal structure. That's what gives you strength, that gives you firmness, that enables you to, to move, that enables you to be effective in your life. If you don't have a skeletal system, you can't do anything. But if you're only a skeletal system, there's <laughs> something wrong with that. We were getting close to Halloween, and you see those skeletons hanging out on people's porches, right? There's something creepy about those things. It's true that there's also something creepy about the person who loves doctrine so much, they're the skeleton, but they don't have any love. They don't have any heart. They don't have any living, pulsating flesh. I mean, they're just the skeleton. Now, we don't ever want to be so doctrinal that we don't love people. Because doctrine should shape us to love people. Now we start with doctrine because we don't know what love is. We don't know how to love unless we have doctrine. But doctrine doesn't ever remain there. Doctrine should lead to devotion. Doctrine should lead to love. And so this leads us to the second thing we really care about. We must really care about promoting godliness. So there's promotion of doctrine. We care about that, but we are also all about promoting in the lives of one another godliness, love, unity. We promote these things in each other's lives. See, we're not just big-brained intellectuals sitting around discussing the intricacies of divine revelation. Some of us tend toward that way, but that's not the point of the church is to just wrestle with ideas. It's a crucial thing that many people should do, but it's not the only thing. Look at chapter 6, verse 3. Paul's telling Timothy, teach and urge these things, and then in verse 3 he says this, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and listen to this little section right here, and the teaching that accords with godliness. Just pause right there. Paul is describing 
a form of teaching, of doctrine that accords with godliness. The NASB translated the doctrine conforming to godliness. In his mind, he's envisioning this. There is truth that is rock-solid, firm truth that you could stake your life on, that when you stake your life on it and you embrace it fully, it conforms you to be godly. You see how it's saying that? There is teaching that accords with godliness. A doctrine is meant to shape our character. There's so many times in teaching and discipling uh, people in, in, in ministry that someone at some point has said to me, I never thought of it that way. And because their thought processes or the way they evaluated something was changed, even in so slight a degree, it changed the way they acted. It changed the way they felt. It changed perhaps an attitude. And this is what Paul intends to communicate here repeatedly, that doctrine is meant to turn lights on, uh, change attitudes, clarify reality that then shapes the way we live. And so every sermon, every time you open the Bible in a Bible study, uh, is God's truth coming into your life to dispel lies. And to the degree that we live in accordance with lies is the degree that we're not godly. But to the degree that we live in accordance to truth is the degree that we're godly. And so there is doctrine that accords or doctrine that conforms us to godliness. Go to chapter 1. This is what's happening again. This is actually kind of the occasion for Paul writing this letter in chapter 1 verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Okay, so there's these teachers that are teaching different doctrines. Verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. So you had these teachers, they were teaching all kinds of speculations, they were teaching these different doctrines, and all it resulted in was people uh, devoting themselves to myths. It, It resulted in more speculation. It resulted in more division. There wasn't any fruitfulness. There wasn't any uh, good, productive growth that was happening as a result of the false teachers. What was happening, rather, was that there was division, there was speculation uh, that was happening, and that was growing in the church because of this false teaching. And so what does Paul say is the way to fix that? Look at verse 5. The aim, rather than trying to promote speculation, here's the goal, here's the aim. Telos is the Greek verb there, or the Greek word there. The aim, the goal, the telos of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. His point here is the aim of the ministry, the goal of the ministry is that it would not produce speculation at people like the false teachers produced, but that it would produce love in people. Pure love. Devoted love. See, this is The reason we regularly promote sound doctrine is not because we just like to download good theological data, but because good doctrine produces and enables love. So that's why we continually preach through Scripture. 
So you don't need a church to just download theological data. You can do that in a podcast or find your favorite preacher online. You can go read stuff on the internet and you can learn all kinds of stuff. You could buy books, stay in your closet all day and learn doctrine. But the point of doctrine is to produce love in you, to produce devotion in you. This would be a good time to pause and ask ourselves, are the things we know leading us to deeper love and commitment toward one another? Are the things we know to be true making us more humble or more proud because we say, hey, we know the truth and no one else does? Remember, you go back to the qualification for elders in in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And it's interesting that the one thing that the elders are called to do is to be able to teach. It's a skill. It's the only skill that's mentioned in the qualifications for elder in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. The only skill is that they should teach. But do you know what the rest of the qualifications are? It's character. It's godliness. It's all character. You know what the point of this is? Is that God intends for his people to learn from people who themselves are embodying the doctrines they preach. Does that make sense? We are intended to be students of people, not who just spout off doctrine, but who we can watch the way they live and see the way that their doctrine leads to godliness. Or we could put it negatively. God doesn't want His people learning in an environment where the people teach the right things, but their lives don't match up. God doesn't want that for the church. Maybe you've been in a church like that or experiencing something like that in the past where uh, the right things are being taught but there's no integrity or the life doesn't match up with the truths that are being proclaimed. This is an abomination in the pulpit. It doesn't matter how much the truth is proclaimed if the life behind the truth isn't matching up. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 23 just excoriates the Pharisees for this very thing. In chapter 23, he says, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Listen to this. So do and observe whatever they tell you. That's something you might not expect to hear from Jesus. Jesus is saying to all the crowds, hey, do what the Pharisees tell you to do. But then listen to what he says, says next. He says, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. What an indictment on the Pharisees. Listen to what they say. Just don't follow their life. Listen to the things they say, but don't follow their example. God wants his people to learn in a place where not only truth is being clarified, proclaimed, taught, doctrine is being prized, but by people who embody the truth, who live out the truth. The people who so embrace the truth that it's conformed their lives. And this is what we're all here to do. This is not just leaders. All of us are supposed to be, as we seek to influence others, are promoting godliness. We're promoting godliness here. We're all about promoting godliness, which means we care about not only knowing the truth, but embodying the truth, living out the truth. And we don't only do that individually, we do that with one another. Why are you here this morning? (laughs) Well, one of the reasons you're here is not only to hear a sermon or get some sort of spiritual pick-me-up, but you're here because there are other people here who need you. You're here because you love them. (laughs) 
I praise the Lord for you and for the love that you have for the others here at the church. And what Paul would be telling us this morning is that God cares about us, yes, learning doctrine, but yes, also all of us together growing in godliness. And so your presence here is an expression of your desire to help other people grow in godliness, is it? That's why we're here. That's why we gather. We know it's not just about us. And so we're here to help others embrace truth, but also live out truth. And so we want to have lives that are modeling the truths we profess. Because the way we preserve the truth, remember that's the purpose of the church, preserve, protect, proclaim the truth. The way we do that is by planting the truth deeply into the lives of people who will outlast us. Look around. This is the people that God has put in our path to promote godliness. So how are you promoting godliness here at our church? This is what Paul wants to impress upon Timothy, that godliness matters. It's in accordance with doctrine. Are there people here who are growing in godliness because of your godly influence? Because of your persevering prayers on their behalf? Because of your commitment to help them in whatever need they have, spiritual or physical? And at the end of someone's life, they will say, I am indebted to so-and-so because of the influence, care, love, even the godly life of so-and-so. Paul cared deeply about this reality that all doctrine was meant to be embodied and lived out. And this, I think, then becomes our conviction that all of us are here to promote godliness in one another's lives. Yes, to be made godly by the sanctification of the Word as it continues to be poured forth in the pulpit and in our natural conversation, but also that we become those people who help each other grow, commit ourselves to others. So we care deeply about that. Let's look at a third commitment that we make, the third idea that Paul's getting to Timothy, we must care, number three, we must care about preparing leaders. Paul obviously cared deeply about this, and so he wrote about it extensively in this letter, about leaders and leadership. This is kind of the opposite of what our culture promotes. You, you would, if you just look around in our culture, you would know and you would recognize that the culture promotes each person being an individual, right? Do your own thing, blaze your own trail, go your own way. And that's kind of the, the, the message that's being heralded all the time in the culture. Each person is an individual. You do your own thing. Don't look at the generations behind you. You do your own thing. The Bible would say, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life, life and imitate their faith, Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders. Think about them. Imitate them. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. In other words... I think sometimes we downplay the power of a good example. I think we sometimes forget about that because our culture is so not concerned about good examples. We tell everyone to just do their own thing and be their own way. And the Bible's sitting here saying, no, there are leaders who live godly lives and they're intended to be leading the church. And what the Bible says is people should watch them and imitate them, and that the whole church has this responsibility to see who these godly people are and to watch and imitate their lives. 
And so look at chapter 3. He, he lays out qualifications for elders. Uh, Paul's so concerned about the preparation of elders in this congregation that he wants to make sure they know what their calling is. Let's read the part about elders in chapter 1, or sorry, chapter 3, verse 1 to 7. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone follows along, follow along with us, if anyone uh, aspires to the office of overseer, and let me just be clear, overseer, pastor, elder, these are all interchangeable in the New Testament. So what these qualifications are for is not only overseers, but elders and pastors. It's all the same role. He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Paul clearly wants Timothy to find men who are character qualified and also they have the competency to teach to lead the churches that Timothy is serving in. See, God's design in the church is that there would be a plurality of elders in every church. This is what the Bible teaches. Paul taught this to Timothy. Hey, Tim, or sorry, Titus. Titus, when you go visit churches, appoint elders in every town. So there's supposed to be a multiple, uh, a multiplicity of elders, a, a number, a group of elders, not just a single guy being the elder. In Acts chapter 14, same thing happens. They travel through uh, after their first missionary journey, they appoint elders, plural, in every church along the way. Now, you're sitting here listening to this, oh, plurality of elders. That means there's more than one. What about us, Eric? And I would say, touche. Right now, in our church, where we're at, we have one elder, and it's me right now. Uh, this is sometimes happens in the way that churches go, and sometimes in various points of a church's life. Uh, sometimes they have no elders. And you can see that clearly in Acts 14. There are uh, churches that are in existence. Paul says, hey, go put elders there. Sometimes there's one, sometimes there's more. Elders are a gift that Jesus gives to the church, and we can't always control exactly how they come to us or when they come to us or how many come to us. But here's our hope. Indeed, here's our prayer. Is that as we continue to preach and shepherd and uh, work for the health of this church, as we continue to commit to one another, that the Lord would clarify and even raise up godly leaders among us who take it upon themselves to say, I want to shepherd this church. I want to meet these qualifications. I want to make sure I'm able to teach so I can be a good teacher to the flock and a good example to the flock. Now, if you're sitting here and you go, hmm, well, how do I do this? Or you might even be sitting here going, well, I'm never going to be an elder. What is in the world's my responsibility for this? Let me, let me just tell you, that it is the local church's responsibility, that means all of us together, to identify, equip, train up, and affirm future leaders in the church. Often churches will go call up seminaries, and there's nothing wrong with that. But really, where the 
training and the affirmation of future leaders is meant to happen is right here in this congregation as the church commits to itself, it commits to loving one another, it is through this congregation, not only this congregation, but local congregations, that the church is meant to identify, train up, affirm, and equip leaders. Listen to Al Mohler. This is a little bit ironic because he's the president of a seminary, a guy who's devoted his life to the seminary and training men in seminary. Listen to what he says about this. He goes, I emphatically believe that the best and most proper place for the education and preparation of pastors is in the local church. We should be ashamed that churches fail miserably in their responsibility to train future pastors. Oh, he's saying that the church, each individual local church should take responsibility. And that's a good responsibility for all of us to bear. It really causes us to understand our calling here. But part of our responsibility is to work for identifying, training, affirming, and appointing leaders. We're all together in the way we do this. Maybe this isn't talked about much in church, but maybe that's why there's a dearth of qualified leaders. All of us are responsible. Yes, you. Even if you'll never be an elder. Even if you don't even care about teaching a Sunday school, even if you have nothing to do with any of that stuff, all of us play a part in helping people identify their gifts. And some of those people will have the gift kind of mixed, the gift requirements meeting with the character qualifications that mean they should be in pastoral leadership. Even if it's not you, you have a role in helping them know it's them. That's why theologians have all also um, described what they call the internal and the external call of some of pastors. There's always an internal call and there's always an external call. Uh, you, you understand, we're not really good self-evaluators. <laughs> we're, we're never world experts on ourselves. Um, often people are really convinced that they've been called the lead in the church and no one else agrees with them. <laughs> Those are sad cases. And sometimes there are people who are convinced, no, I don't have anything to offer. And yet they got a whole bunch of people following them and they're clearly gifted and they're clearly qualified. You know what? They need the church, both of those people. It's all of our job to help people identify those things. And so there's this internal call, which theologians say is the internal desire to do the work of pastoral ministry, this desire that is given by God for them to do it. But then there's also the external call. Where the church together says, yes, this person is character qualified. I've seen it. This person is bearing fruit. I've tasted of their good fruit. It's benefit to me and my family. This person is able to teach. I don't know if I would be a pastor if it wasn't for the little old ladies in my congregation back in Simi who came up to me after sermons and encouraged me. A young man who thought maybe I had never, I didn't know if I could teach or not. I didn't know if I had any gift in that way, but it was the faithful people in the church who just loved me and gave me many opportunities to fail, but encouraged me along the way. And that's all our role. You know, sometimes our spiritual gifts are kind of like a, a, a kick-me sign on the back of our shirt. And we're walking around and we don't know it's there and everyone else sees it and we just are the dumb ones that we don't realize we have that spiritual gift. And then we go and we are given some opportunity to teach a Sunday school class and some person walks up to us afterwards and they go, man, when you taught that the lights went on. Like I've never understood it that way, but you've been so helpful. 
And these little statements and these little affirmations and these little encouragements are just happening in the life of the church. And suddenly, a person who maybe thought they had nothing to offer is suddenly going, wow, maybe I'm good at this. Maybe I should do this. Maybe I can lead. Friends, that's all of our jobs, is to help those people learn who they are, to learn what their gifts are, to encourage and affirm them over time, through the regular ups and downs of life, as you see character put on display, as you see the way they live and function in the church, there should come a day when we put a person or maybe a couple people, a couple men up front, and we say, hey, these are people who have shown a desire to be an elder, and all of you sit there and you go, absolutely. Absolutely, because, man, of course, that's called the external call, and the church calls them formally to ministry. And so we're all a part of this, friends. We're all a part of this. And a healthy church is caring about raising up leaders. And some of those leaders will end up staying here and blessing our congregation for decades. And some of those leaders we'll send out with joy to bear fruit in other vineyards. And we'll affirm them and we'll praise the Lord with the good fruit they bear in other places. We pray that, that God would allow us to do that. And so we care about preparing leaders. Here's the last thing. And actually, friends, this is the most important thing. This is the thing that all the others are just laying the foundation for. I mean, the reason we preach sound doctrine, the reason we embrace lives of godliness, the reason we want healthy leaders is because of this. We must care about proclaiming the gospel. Friend, your greatest need this morning is to behold Jesus Christ in all His beauty, in all His splendor, in all His majesty, against the backdrop of your own unworthiness, and to be in awe of Him. This is our greatest need this morning, tomorrow morning. Every Sunday, this is our greatest need to gather and just remember who we are in light of who God is. And so the entire church is organized around this reality. We must publish again and again the gospel. We must proclaim again and again who God is, who Christ is, who we are. We must always do this. Guys, we believe that Jesus Christ is big, really big, mind-blowingly big, world-tilting big. This is the biggest news that has ever entered our universe is this reality that God created us for His glory and we have fallen away into sin and rebellion and we have been made guilty. And like we read in Romans 5 this morning, that because of our guilt, we deserve the wrath of God. And God, in His goodness, will punish sinners because that is the just thing to do but also because of his overflowing goodness and love that he sends his son, his perfect son, Jesus Christ, to come to earth to bear the weight of the sin of anyone who would ever believe in him. Anyone who would ever come can be totally and freely forgiven. He's alive. He's risen from the dead. This reality shapes everything, guys. Look at, look at the text. Look at the very first verse of this letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command, listen to even the way he describes who God is. God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. See, the church isn't a bulletin board like the things you see at Starbucks where there's apartments for rent, 
there's a concert coming up, there's other random notices. See, the church isn't that, where everything just gets equal emphasis. This is the main thing that we will never deviate from, is that God is a Savior, and that Christ is the only hope of the world. And this is the first thing that Timothy even, or says, that Paul says to Timothy, is that even in introducing himself, God's a Savior. Christ Jesus is hope. You look at chapter 2, verse 3. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, listen to this, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He's saying to Paul, pray for all people. Why? God is a Savior. God desires all people to be saved. Do we feel the same passion that Paul felt as he penned those words? This is our God. He's not unwilling. He's not holding back. His hand is not short that he does not want to save. He's leaning in. He's eager. He desires, it says, to save all people. And so our desire is to imitate God in this as we proclaim the gospel to all people. We care about this. Christ is our hope. He's the only hope in the world. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live and die for sinners, to rise again, conquering sin, Satan, hell, and death, and now He's going to return again. We don't know when. But it's the hope of the world. And it's the mission of the church to make sure that truth never gets obscured, never gets buried, but is front and center. It is the main thing. This is why we exist. For the glory of Jesus Christ. We exult in Him. There is no better Savior. There is no greater and firm hope. There is no greater and deeper joy. He is the best friend. He is the only hope of the whole world. And so as a church, we will regularly, repeatedly, and consistently proclaim the gospel. Go through and read 1 Timothy and just count the number of times that Paul talks about the overflowing grace of God, the mercy of God, that even the chief of sinners, as he saw himself, could be the recipient of this divine grace. It was the theme of his every word. That Christ is worth it, and so we as the church must fight for the preservation of this truth. Is there any better reason to gather? I don't think so. And as we do, and as we commit to these things, this is what happens. I'll echo the words of John Piper here. We become a God-exalting, Christ-admiring, Spirit-filled, Bible-enjoying, grace-preaching, convenience-defying, cross-embracing, risk-taking, selfishness-crucifying, gossip-silencing, prayer-saturated, future-thinking, outward-reaching, beautifully humane congregation where the undeserving thrive. That's what we want to become. By the grace of God, as we dive into 1 Timothy, these realities will become part of our DNA. Amen? And let's pray. So, Lord, we love your church. We're here because we love your church. Although, Lord, we can't take credit for that love, that is a love that you first showed us and then you poured into our hearts and you changed our hearts so that things we didn't love 
in the past you have made to be our precious, most precious possessions. So, Lord, we love your church. And we pray that on that day that we stand before you, we would be found faithful. So, Lord, help us to preserve the doctrine you've handed down to us through the ages. Help us to embody the truth with lives of godliness. Help us to be concerned about preparing a generation of leaders who will outlast us. And Lord, let us be ever faithful in proclaiming the gospel. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.